0: Y'all ready to rock? Awesome.
1: I'm Chris White, writer and director of the coming-of-age music movie Electric Jesus, A story set in a world that might seem like a foreign planet to some people. Electric Jesus, the music behind the movie, is your VIP backstage pass into this crazy world. And in the immortal words of Skip Wick, our Christian rock huckster with feet of clay and a bad toupee. The Rock and Roll Roadshow. Praise the Lord and pass the
0: ammunition.
2: season one finale where in the 80s biggest CCM pop star metal star and alt rock star walk into a podcast and it's ours the music behind the movie indeed with special guests Steve Taylor Michael Sweet of Striper and Amy Grant so we're rolling so uh...
1: John we are at the the final episode of the th- Of the first season of the Electric Jesus podcast, and we have just pulled out all the stops. Yes, we have. We made it. Well, I mean, one, I mean, this has been incredibly uh, interesting and, and fun just to do. But at some point, once we started the interview process, we started talking about, you know, how do we put a button on this? How do we wrap it up? How do we give people the world of 80s? CCM, the world of electric Jesus in a way that would, would, you know, would be great. Um, and I think we have nailed it. I think this is the way.
2: Yeah. It's, it's kind of fun because you know, the, the story is made up the characters in the movie are product of your rich twisted imagination, but these are real (laughs) people. Like, you know, like most of us when we were kids, like, you know, I, I grew up, in this world and all three of these guests loomed large uh Mm -hmm. and uh so today we get to actually pull the curtain back and look behind the myths and actually hear from the people themselves and uh, it's i remember you saying you know what we have to do we've got to get these three people for our finale and I said yeah man that's a long shot I don't know if we're gonna pull it off and it, man we did it that's let's
1: start it started out by talking to um the artist who would be who I consider to be you know my favorite CCM artist of the era Steve Taylor and yeah. for just a brief uh who Steve Taylor is what what his music was like um I think the com- the combination of artists you said, Elvis Costello. Sort of that style—a very um, angry young man, um, post-punk, new wave, yeah. um, right. With a little bit of Bowie in there, um, and a and a little bit of there was some kind of dance music in there in the Steve Taylor, uh, which world. Bowie was I mean, definitely
2: this- doing in the you know in the eighties as well. Yeah, yeah. He was Steve Taylor was interesting because he was very cool. He was very much in step with mm-hmm. what was happening in. Popular music, and he was very much a product of what was going on in the evangelical subculture. But instead of being a, a cheerleader of it, he was like the almost the jester in the court that was mm-hmm. had mm-hmm. the had the job of telling the king what was wrong, and and he did it really really well, and so well in fact that uh, in that era of alternative. Artists that were not doing straight up the middle CCM music Steve was able to fill large venues full of people Doing offbeat really cool music and that was rare back then that was very very rare
1: It was it was um, it was it was a great experience to be a, a teenager and to be uh, Interacting with that scene the Christian music scene with somebody like Steve Taylor Because he felt like the cool older brother the cool camp counselor um, that that knew all the best jokes and and had the best taste <laughs> and he still is that <laughs> yes, Steve is yes, now yes. a filmmaker a screenwriter a professor and still a musician who we learn in our conversation is working on some new songs right now so right. nothing more to say let's just let's let's head in there and and talk to Steve Taylor. So Steve I want to I'm thinking about the 80s 82 83 84 when you're coming into your own as a as an artist and your musical approach was different was it was less common for that for the CCM world how did you come to be like a, a Christian music artist why uh how did that how did you decide that Uh, rather than just being, you know, a pop artist or, you know, an alternative new wave artist. I
0: was going to Boulder, University of Colorado at Boulder, which was a very, you know, kind of radical campus environment, and and I had a barber I would go see every six weeks, get my hair cut, and he was a talkative guy, like most good barbers are, good carrying on a conversation, and he just always wanted to know what I was doing. So at the time I was also making these demo tapes that ended up becoming my first EP. And uh, you know, at one point he said, "Well, I'd like to hear these." And I said, well oh, that's nice of you." He said, "No, really, I want to hear them." So I said, "Okay, well, I'll bring a tape next time." And I gave him the tape, and the next time I saw him to get a haircut, he said, "I really like that." I said, "Well, thanks, that's nice." He said. And i played him for this friend of mine who owns a bookstore but he just you know started the bookstore a few years ago after moving out from la where he was in music publishing i said well that's good and he said he really likes it too and he's wondering if maybe you'd be up for him setting up some meetings for you in, uh you know in hollywood to meet with some of the big music labels and i'm like yeah that sounds good so uh i went out to la and met with uh I think it was someone at Warner Brothers and someone at Arista and A&R and maybe one other person. And their reaction was, oh, we really like this music. It's kind of a punk new wave hybrid, but we don't understand these lyrics. They're kind of Christian, but kind of sarcastic. And, you know, we're just afraid these lyrics would offend our listeners. So that's when I thought, well, if it's the Christian content, I need to talk to... Christian labels, and that's when I was—I had another friend that set me up while I was out there with a meeting with Sparrow and with Word, and I played them the demos, and they were like, "Uh, "We don't like this music, and your lyrics would offend our listeners." So, um, it's pretty much where I landed. Uh, And so, yeah, so i I got turned down by Sparrow the first time by their A&R guy, Uh, but then I think a year later, I did a two songs up at Estes park, uh, they're kind of annual music in the Rockies. And the head of the label was in the audience and I don't know if he necessarily got the music, but the, the crowd reaction was very hyped. And, uh, and so he met me on the side of the stage when I got off and said, I want to do a deal. So it was kind of that by default.
1: But it, but it didn't, uh, with you, did it enter your mind? Well, then I'll just change the lyrics.
0: Uh no. Yeah, no, that never entered my mind actually.
1: So there was something you wanted to say that had to do with Jesus in 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 your the language of that music? Yeah.
0: I mean it was as you know, very a lot of satire and uh it was not looking at Christianity or the church from the kind of normal lens of gospel music.
1: Well yeah, that's what I was I was gonna say. Like We've talked to people that they wanted to, whatever, evangelize. They want to reach the world with their songs. And so the lyric content is very important so people would come to the show and, and get saved or have an a, a, a experience with God in a transformative way. It seems like when I listen to your songs, a lot of your songs are pretty much pointed at Christians with a very, very sharp point that you were almost like you were mad about something as you were talking to these Christians. (laughs) Is that fair? Is that?
0: Yeah, that's fair. And that's kind of where I thought, well, a mainstream audience would probably share a lot of these concerns and might be interested. But,
1: you know, it was not to be so. uh... So you walked into the world of CCM, giving kids music to listen to in the car to be uh, to rebel against their parents, I guess, maybe.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. Where did that come
2: from, Steve, like that that spirit, that idea of satirizing the church culture that was actually the industry you were going into? Like, right? What gave you the insp- original inspiration for being uh, almost like that Elvis Costello type of tone, but within the Christian culture, where did that inspiration come from in the first place?
0: It was funny you mentioned Elvis Costello. He has a line in one of his songs "I want to bite the hand that feeds me. I want to bite that hand so badly and um, I, maybe there was something in there. but uh,
2: you've got chunks of it in your teeth still, right?
0: <laughs> that's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We used a song of yours. It's one of my favorite of your songs. This disco used to be a cute cathedral. What was the inspiration behind that song? Yeah, there was a in New York City a uh,
0: a church got turned into a disco, uh, the Limelight, and um, I remember when I went just to check it out. It was just such a trip because it was clearly clearly a church. They had hadn't done a lot to change it up outside of add a sound system and a better dance floor and taking out the pews. It was just wild to see sort of the center of the uh, club universe at that point inside a, uh, a church.
1: And, the, and the, the idea, I guess the lyric is probably pointed at what? Uh, churches that are being really cool.
0: Yeah, it was kind of like adapting the... I mean, I'm sure there's a balance to be struck. Of course, at that age, I wasn't really interested in balance, but um, just the thought of kind of putting on a front to kind of draw people inside, I think I called it Country Club Christianity at the time.
1: And how was the how was that song received in the in the Christian subculture when it came out in 1985?
0: Well, I was living in LA, and um, KROQ was kind of the big new music uh, station for the United States. Really, that they were breaking all kinds of bands, and they actually picked up on that song and uh, played it periodically. Um, it never quite achieved hit status in that world but that was a nice uh nice compliment you know all this stuff it, it had an audience people seemed to really like it but it also had a lot of people that that really didn't like it and uh really resented kind of the satirical aspect of the lyrics
1: is that something the idea that the christian comedian or the fool uh, this seems to be an honorable idea, really, if you're reading the gospel, the idea of being foolish to be wise. or, or um, I, I think there's obvious instances where Jesus has a sense of humor in the gospel. Why do you think it kind of does feel like Christians get a little thin-skinned or, or some Christians get a thin-skinned or get a little bent out of shape about satire or even irony or something where you're kind of having fun with something
0: yeah i've been reading the book of acts and um and then on sunday at church it was a sermon about one of the parables of jesus and i'm started wondering i don't recall any parables from any of the apostles like there were some parables in the old testament but you know jesus was kind of the master storyteller and then even the early church, as far as you know, as far as we know from from the Book of Acts and you know all the epistles, there is—I don't think there's a single parable in any of them that I can recall. Uh, so I don't know why that is. It, you know, maybe maybe the apostles were just too intimidated to want to pick up where Jesus left off when it came to telling stories, but they just didn't do it anymore. In some ways, it seems like the church went through kind of a long period where i guess that was the model not so much the storytelling model
1: or or more didactic like paul's letters or here here's how we're going to be a church here are going to be the rules here's how you christian living uh kind of stuff
0: yeah and that you know that made sense i'm sure at the time and probably still does today on some level but it's uh it's not necessarily the only thing we can do or that we should be good at
1: when you're um performing touring uh around that time the this disco um on the fritz album uh what was what was that like as just a christian artist perf- i mean there's a there's a degree of celebrity to it you know you're the rock star at the show uh signing autographs whatever afterwards uh, but then there's also like and then there's the music, there's the art of it. You know, are we going to be a good band? Am I going to sing well tonight? And and your stage performances are to this day are filled with great uh, dance physical <laughs> physical presentation, uh, shall we say? <laughs> but then there's also like, am I a minister? Do I need to speak gospel to people? I mean, is are you feeling that? Like, I'm a rock star. Sign the autograph. Be famous for these kids, but also be like, uh, I need to be teaching them something from the Bible, maybe. Yeah,
0: it's such a weird place to land. It, and it's, you know, the, the people that I think tended to lose their way are the people that actually got comfortable with it. Because how can you be comfortable with that? You're a, you know, you... Claim to follow Jesus, who made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant and and you know how could you ever be comfortable with celebrity I mean frankly those are those are the pastors that most likely to screw up too is they just kind of get to where, oh yeah, this is how it should be um, it's just not it's just not a something we should ever be comfortable with and frankly. I started, you know, I got into producing other bands and for at least a season, enjoyed that equally, if not more, just because I wasn't waking up every day having to try to make sense of that dichotomy.
1: Right. I I can see that that would be a tension because, you know, you gotta put on the, the clothes and the hair for the photo that's gonna be, you know, sent to the magazine and like, this is an idiotic, weird thing that I'm doing right now because aren't we all supposed to not care about things like this or, you know? um, But it is, you know, in that tension, you know, I think there is something about pop music and rock music that gives um, young people, adolescents a place to go and a place to work out a lot of ideas.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, you could probably make a good argument that in the 80s and 90s music had a bigger kind of cultural footprint than it does today too. So on some level, maybe it made a little more sense back then than it, just thinking about it now, it's, it's, it feels a little absurd, <laughs> But um, but I'm an older man too. <laughs>
2: I'm thinking about the you know, the fact that when I was 16, I did the Steve Taylor lip sync contest in front of opening for you, you know, in front of a couple thousand people. And, you know, I was actually lip syncing to, to meltdown in front of that audience and dressing like you and dancing like you as best I could, imitating you. But metaphorically, I was also needing somebody like you because I didn't grow up in the more fundamentalist side of the evangelical world. And I did not understand things like, when you talked about uh, racism and we don't need no color code, I didn't understand, I didn't experience that. And so I thought, is this really happening? And then that opened my eyes to the idea that there's still a Christian college somewhere that's not letting black and white students date, like that's happening right now. You had a lot of people listening. You had big crowds, and yet you were holding that mirror up saying, there is something profoundly wrong with what is happening in in our camp. You were very serious about that, but at the same time, you were kind of laughing, but it's not funny, right? And so... um how do you feel that worked or uh, like what kind of lingering effect or efficacy was there to that as an artist, as a person, when you look back, uh, how do you feel? How effective do you think that was?
0: Yeah, man, that's a tough one. I, I know as far as influence goes, you know, you mentioned res band and they had a huge influence on me and, you know, even on, on the music that I did and, uh, that was the first tour they ever did was they took me out with them and you know that was the best training I could have had because I was hanging out with people who were really genuine and serious about their faith and also not at all uh bound by mainstream Christian culture uh so that was a great training ground um you know it's really hard to to know Looking back on all that, I I know, I, I'm sure it did some good. Um, I think today, and, you know, I don't want to get political on you, but with the state of things where the kind of bulk of the evangelical churches and uh, their support of a certain ex-president, um, I think I was giving a lot of Christian leaders, the benefit of the doubt that didn't deserve the benefit of the doubt. And so it's been, a, it's been a tough couple of, uh well, more like four or five years that, wow, so you guys really were just about out for power. Like, I was kind of naive about that. I actually thought, I actually, I actually thought you had a higher calling than that. And, it's, you know, if I was, if I was, uh, Starting off writing music today, I, it would be, there would be plenty to be angry about. I think, I, you know, I haven't tackled that a lot. You know, our band Chagall Guevara is... Uh, uh, that's a whole other story, but we're working on some new music, and certainly there are some threads of that running through it, what we've all just been through over the last four or five years. But um, if I was starting off as a solo artist, there would be a lot. I would be very pissed off.
2: Because eventually you did have to just detach from CCM and go out. Yes. In order to do what you felt you needed to do, you just had to say, "I'm done and I'm out."
0: Yeah, it was a it was a little bit different experience because I wasn't I didn't leave quite as angry necessarily. I just felt like Christian music and the 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 kind of shape of it had gotten to a place at that moment where it was way more interested in specifically serving the church and uh, that wasn't what I was seeing for as the best use of my time.
1: What would you say to 1985 you, if you were, if you were having a conversation with that young man, um, older maybe, hopefully wiser Steve? What would you, <laughs> what would be your counsel and advice to that fellow?
0: Yes, I thought about that the other day. Um, one of the things is I'm repeating an Ira Glass quote uh, from This American Life. Um, he talks about how you get into arts, music, writing, whatever, because you have good taste. and But then you get into it, and there's this gap between your taste and what you're actually doing. And I think by the time I actually started recording, I was 25. So that gap had mostly closed. But uh, But I do wish someone would have told me that 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 takes a while because it probably would have saved me a few years of frustration, um, trying to close that gap. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a professor now teaching students in film and songwriting, and I, I love doing that. But one of the things I tell them is the three certainties in life are death taxes and professional jealousy. And that, uh, that's just going to happen. And so you have to actively work to subvert that. You've got to go out and, you know, encourage and support the people that you would otherwise you'd be professionally you'd be jealous of and of their success or their uh you know their their craft or whatever you know we're all good at championing the great artists that have never made it but uh the ones that are really good and also really successful are the ones that kind of can stick in our craw and um so i would have loved for someone to tell me that early on Uh, I didn't do a bad job at that. I I, I was kind of uh, understood that that was not a good thing, but um, uh, that's something you got to kind of actively work against. And then the other thing that um, I would have liked someone to tell me is that you will never be successful enough. You're always going to feel like you got a little bit ripped off, that it never got quite, you know, the whatever it is, attention or success you deserve. And of course that's absurd and also fights against a very biblical concept of contentment but it would have been a nice thing to hear when i was first starting out because you know it doesn't matter how well things go or how successful you are you just always feel like yeah but it could have been better i could have you know i deserve better
1: well is is any of that just a function of of uh and, and I mean this in an uh, ambition, in a healthy way, a lot, artists and, I mean, it's good to have goals and want to get better and improve. And I mean, there's a degree to that that's probably healthy, but I think, I think you're right. I think where that goes to that professional jealousy or that just kind of soul sickness where you just need the bigger job because the bigger job is actually going to satisfy this. Yeah. You're ambitious right now for music you're writing with the band, you know? I am. You nailed it, Chris. And that's the problem is you have to have
0: that if you want to be an artist. How can you not have ambitions as an artist? And at the same time, those ambitions are, you know, what can keep you from enjoying the moment and uh, appreciating what you have. And so, you know, that's another thing that you just... You're living constantly in the tension of that, but if you stop uh, being uncomfortable with that tension, you're going to lose your way really quick.
1: There he is. That was Steve Taylor. I that was, uh, there's so many moments when we're working on Electric Jesus where I just want to go back in time and talk to 16-year-old me. You know, I, I asked Steve, you know, what he would say to himself if he could okay. go back and talk to young Steve in that time. What I would say to young me is, I get to talk to Steve Taylor <laughs> right. in the future. You yeah. will talk to Steve Taylor Um no it was just great
2: I had a moment driving to set from Nashville down to Georgia and I had the on the fritz suit uh, in my car you know because Steve loaned it to us to to use in the movie and um, thinking that was one of those moments I'm like if 15 year old me would have any idea that someday that suit that famous (laughs) confetti suit would be in my car and then hanging in my front closet for months until Uh Steve came and picked it up um I and just Steve, it would blow so, blow my mind.
1: Well there is an actor uh, it's a very brief scene blink and you miss it kind of scene where we see Eric and Sarah backstage and they look over and Steve Taylor's kind of standing in the wings next to them and we don't see his face. Um <clears throat> this is something about that suit. Um it is the actual suit he wore on that tour. Yeah. I thought maybe he had a bunch of them or something. He doesn't. He has one. It's no, the same one, one. he wore. And he trusted
2: us with it. And I was I oh. walked onto set with that thing and I was someone said, "Here, we'll take it and put it in a wardrobe." I said, "No, you will not." I said, "I'm taking this to Chris. There's one person on this whole movie set that understands mm-hmm. how important this suit is, and that is Chris White. Nobody else here gets it." And everybody looked at me like I was stoned, and I said, "No, I'm sorry. Like Chris White will understand." And I showed, and I just pointed at it and I said, "The suit." And you're you like, oh, "Oh, okay. I get it."
1: Yeah, yeah but, but yeah, odd, and, um, and, and finding, finding a background actor to fit the suit was, <laughs> was also insane because Steve's about, you know, he's like eight, nine feet tall, and, uh, <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> yeah. he's a stick. But we did find somebody, and he did play yeah. Steve Taylor. But this, right. now what follows, I would always say that Steve Taylor is my favorite uh, Christian artist back in the day. I think that most of my friends were either in the camp of one of these two artists that we're about to talk to, Michael Sweet of Striper or Amy Grant.
2: Yeah, They both are also in the movie in their own way, you know, they're, they're yes. planets that these characters are orbiting around, you know, and um, mm-hmm. uh, they're a they're sun and a moon uh, or something like that. So, uh,
1: And that was the idea, you know, I we had talked about interviewing them separately. Or together and I was kind of hung up on this idea of them being in the room together just because it was it was like they were like the opposite ends of this wide spectrum that was you know the the most popular uh, Christian artist at the time I would I would you know at at least there's an argument to be made that they were and they're on both sides of the spectrum right you got hairband glory over here with Michael Sweet and his brother and their band Striper and then you have pop perfection with, with, with Amy Grant.
2: So, uh, with no further ado, let's uh, head into the interview suite with two legends who are still getting it done Amy Grant and Michael Sweet.
1: Amy, I'm Chris White. I'm the uh, writer and director of Electric Jesus. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for chatting sure, with us. Yes.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Sure.
1: And this is uh, Michael Sweet of Striper.
3: Hello, Michael. Hey, Amy,
1: how are you?
3: <laughs> I'm good.
4: Did they tell you we we're, re- we're recording the song
1: live today?
3: <laughs> oh, we, well, I, I'll be fired from that project.
1: <laughs> yes. No, I'm just going gonna, gonna to jump in and just start the conversation and say um, thank you, Michael Sweet, lead singer, guitarist, and founder of the band Striper, and uh, for joining us on the Electric Jesus podcast with Amy Grant. Amy Grant, thank you for joining us as well. Um, thank you, Chris. Our film Electro Jesus, it's set back in 1986. So I was going to start by just asking you guys to time travel with me a little bit. It's 1985, 1986. Both of you, Amy with Unguarded, Michael with Striper's to Hell with the Devil, you guys are kind of blowing up. You're rock stars, pop stars, Christian stars. My friends and I in our little Southern Baptist youth group, we love you both. Well, to be honest, some of us are more in the striper camp, Amy. And, and vice versa. Totally understand. <laughs> vice versa, My, Michael. Um, we know you. We love you. We quite honestly, we idolize you. What's that moment like for you guys, though? I'm guessing it's maybe different than what we would have imagined from uh, looking up at you from the, the youth group.
4: Take it away, Michael. You, mean, <laughs> you know what? It was it, for, for me. I didn't really think I wasn't in the moment thinking about it. I was just doing it. I was just, music was my life and, and God was working in an incredible way. And I was just kind of going with the flow. I wasn't, I didn't have time to think about it. Now I do, mm-hmm. you know, I have a lot more time to think about it now uh, and to read comments and see what other people think about it because of social media and the internet. And that's a good thing and that's a bad thing. I kind of miss the old days when you didn't have to read everything online. Uh, but, you know, it was, an, it was an incredible time, a very special time, and I felt like the the band and the music was anointed, and, and many bands, and, and a lot of music was, and it was powerful. God was really moving. It was special. How about you, Amy?
3: Well, I ditto what Michael said about, uh, I would describe the 80s as an unobserved time. You know, we were free from all of the... Um, the burdensome side of social media and when you're working hard all you're aware of is just the day in front of you and um, I remember those years the mid-80s as being um, you know when we when I would leave when we would leave for a tour we did five shows a week two days on one day off three days on one day off and really uh, you know we would fall asleep on a bus, wake up in another town. I felt like the, our, our greatest time and energy was spent toward, do I have clean clothes? If not, I have to find a laundromat. Um, enjoy being in a new town, but make sure you have enough energy to do what you're really in town to do. I remember just meeting so many people but I didn't, it never occurred to me what, what we were doing looked like to somebody else. I just thought, well, we all share an interest in music, this music, that's why people are coming and, and buying a ticket, which, by the way, tickets were super cheap back then. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, and, and mostly I just felt like, you know, we, we were all young and trying to find and create language for the faith journey. And at that time everybody it was kind of it felt like in their own mole run until you came to a music event and then it was like oh there are all these people who want to get together and talk about this and 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 sing together and not in the confines of a church and so in some Mm -hmm. ways it just it felt um it was a lot of hard work but i didn't i never felt like the I didn't ever feel close up the downside of anything. You know, we were all getting to do something we loved and didn't know where it was going to go. And um, there's a real simplicity to life on the road.
1: You're both such um, talented people, but you're also authentic and and truly devout in your faith. Do you ever feel those aspects of your personality like bumping up against this idea of Christian celebrity or or the myth of the the pop star or something? Um, Did you ever feel like it was strange that I'm this celebrity and uh, known for being a famous Christian and that either feels like weird, like why should I be famous as a Christian or, I'm, you know, I'm just trying to be authentic as an artist, I'm trying to create this moment you're talking about. How aware of that were you?
3: I think I'm right in saying, Michael, did, were you guys hanging out with Guido back then? Was he part of your entourage? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I, pr- yeah. I can probably say this about both of us, is probably what, ins- what inspired me to sing songs about faith. And and other things, was that the the faith family that I was a part of in Nashville was really the celebration that God can use anybody. If He can use Balaam's ass to get a message across and talk through an animal, mm-hmm. He can use even you. And so, um, I did not participate in a community that. Was blowing a lot of smoke up my skirt, mm-hmm. in a way of this is so awesome and cool what you're doing. Um, even my family, I remember calling home and I, I honestly was my head was upside down because we had sold out the forum, and I had a friend with me in the hotel room. She talks about this to this day. I would call home and I and I said I, I I've never even seen that many people. I, who do I know in California? And she said within three maybe four minutes, it was, oh, you're kidding, how many points did he score? Because my nephew was in high school and their basketball, they were like, and so it's like whatever was happening, you know, I'm the youngest of four daughters in my family, now we're all grown, my parents have passed on, but whatever I was doing was just tucked right in there with what everybody else was doing and not given more or less importance. But my family was not waiting for me to experience success so they could all have a reason for being. They, mm. Everybody had something going on. And when I was in town, we were going to the kids' baseball games. We were hanging t- with my grandmother. I don't know. It just There was just no priority given to that. And so it never occurred to me that priority was given to that by somebody I didn't know.
4: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, never, I never thought about it. I never, I just wrote songs and performed and, you know, I didn't take the time or make the time to, it just all came naturally. Um, now, like I said, I, I have a lot more time to think about things and, and that's really incredible when I look back on the past and the history of, of the band and music. It's really incredible, and Guido, Michael Guido, who she's, who Amy's referring to, he's he's been in our lives from the very beginning, yeah. and he's still in our lives. Um, and I I always call Michael uh-huh. the fifth band member because he really is. He's such an integral, important part. of Who is of that? Who, who is that are. person? And, uh, I, I I'm, I'm not sure
3: awesome. I know who that is. He's like a road preacher.
4: Well, my history, yeah, my history with Michael very quickly is. He was in a band with our okay. bass player.
3: I didn't know that. I didn't know yeah. that either.
4: So, <laughs> wow. Yeah, way way back. Guido, Guido was a drummer. He was a drummer. Oh, wow. well, He is a drummer. Yeah, he played music. And he, he got out of music and took over the family tile business. His father had a tile business, and he took that over. And uh, he became, you know, basically our pastor. He was the guy that went to all the shows and came to the garage when we were rehearsing and, you know, prayed with the band and blessed the band and encouraged and inspired the band. So he was just such an important part of who we are. And he was that guy too. That if we were, you know, out of line and we were doing things backstage, you know, instead of praying and we were blasting music and drinking a beer or whatever, he was that guy that he was that guy that would come and, and get on us, you know, say, "What are you guys doing?" You know. Um, so he is a brother to me and I know that he's very important in, in Amy's life and Michael Michael uh, Smith's life and so many others uh, DC Talk, it's just a, a long list of artists that Michael has helped and inspired and been there wow, for right. for many yeah.
1: years. that's really cool really cool yeah. film, Electric Jesus, it lives in the complications, the gray areas of evangelical youth group culture. You both exist almost as mythic figures, um, more than real people. Um, But let me make it real. Would you, in this moment, like as the adults you are now, what what would you say to 1986 you? What would your now self want your then self to know? What's like a, a wise word you might offer to yourself
4: three words don't do it no I'm kidding
3: (laughs) (laughs) oh wow I'd have to really think about that I mean there's the answer I would give here on a public platform and then there's the answer I would what I would say to myself if nobody were listening actually 1986 was a super hard year for me privately in my marriage uh, I made a lot of really dumb choices Um, and I don't You know, I think I would just say to my 1986 self, I would say, believe it or not, every part of your life journey will be used for good. And it has a whole lot less to do with what's happening outside of your skin and more to do with what's happening to you on the inside. And so... Every circumstance in which you find yourself actually is going to, whether you do things successfully, whether you um, do things poorly, they're all great lesson tools. And they will actually, um, I don't know, they'll make, uh, it, everything just becomes a big serving of humble pie. <laughs> and... um you know, I didn't have phrases like this but at the time, but what I grew to understand was everybody's life is so unique, and when you meet people and you, you assume so much common, so much commonality, and that can sometimes be um, misleading. But all through the 80s and the 90s, I think I learned a way of entering a group saying, spend a lot of time observing other people to understand them. Mm. Not, not to say, oh, you're like me. Oh, you're not like me. But just mm. to go, everybody enters every circle so unique. How The families we come from, the pain we've been through, the joys we've been through. And I, I really think that was the beginning for me of, you know, I did have a powerful youth group experience. I had a, a loving family. I had a lot of um, stability in my upbringing. And and then suddenly I am, because of music, meeting so many people. Their guard is down completely. I am in the canned vegetable aisle at the grocery store, and people are spilling out their deepest darkest secrets to me and it is okay to say I don't know what it feels like to be you I and and that grace and kindness and sometimes those things are just silent it's okay just to show up who you are wherever you are in your journey you don't have to have it together you can actually be simultaneously failing and you can still create an environment where The love of god is not just present but welcomed and people are still crazy messy Mm. that's i think that's when i what i really i look back on 1986 and just go whoo that was my first real encounter with people are messy people that you trust are messy everybody's messy so like everything looks great on paper you start including a few people It's gonna be a mess. (laughs) 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 But it doesn't mean that God's not still at work and that, you know, we're just sort of always on a continuum of growing up and learning and learning from our mistakes and and that's that is
1: life. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. How about you, Michael?
4: You know, it was a, a life changing year for me. I mean, with the success of the album, obviously, but more importantly, I I got married in 1986, uh, and not long after that, in '87, uh, early '87, had my my first my son. So that was that kind of brought everything together for me. It, it, I was able to at that point in time understand much more deeply my relationship with God and how he viewed me because I had a son. So it, it made me grow up really fast because I was an immature, you know, kid that I wanted to eat a Taco Bell all the time and sit in the corner and write songs and crank the amp. You know, that's all I cared about. And having having Mike, Mikey, uh, changed everything for me and it made me understand everything in, in a much more clear clear much clearer way so and yet at the same time i was touring i was gone eight months in 1986 i was gone for eight months out of the year touring so i was never home i had to fly i flew home in 87 to be there while mikey was born and then literally the next day fly back out to go tour so it was just mayhem in an incredibly exciting way you know, uh, in a positive way. A lot of great things taking place at that time, at that point in time. Uh, and I was growing as a person. I was growing as an artist. I was growing as a dad, as a husband. I was growing as a business partner. I started to get more involved in the business side of things, which I didn't care about prior to that. If, if I had to pick one year, if someone said, what was the highlight of your quote-unquote career? You know, I'd probably say 86 was that year. If
3: old walls could speak of things that they remember well stories and faces dearly held a couple in love living week to week rooms full of laughter if these walls could speak
1: What if somebody asked you, uh, Michael Sweet, what's a uh, Amy Grant song you would want to cover, as the band or as a solo? I mean, you, you do a great acoustic set.
4: Because of the melody and the message and the minor chord progression, and I think Stryker could do a pretty cool, heavier version of it. I'd have to go with El Shaddai, definitely. Mm. I think I think we could we could do a pretty cool version of that. I can hear it in my head right now. Or (laughs) not. Oh, that's great. It's so funny
3: because I would, I mean, I knew you were going to ask me what Striper song, and I was just going, I mean, I never, because it's it's just a totally different vocal. (laughs) (laughs) To hell with the devil. (laughs) Yeah, I'd have to wail on that one.
4: When things are going wrong, you know who to blame.
3: Always live up to his name He never was the answer
4: there's a better
3: way Yes Skinny is here to rock him and to say Hey to help
2: with
3: the devil
1: I mean you can hear it right you can hear Amy Grant with an acoustic guitar just doing like to hell with the devil it it must oh, i happen. want to
2: hear her like with a with a les paul through a marshall stack stacks <laughs> you keep your acoustic i've heard her with an acoustic guitar my whole life i want to hear
1: her rock that thing that's true and she was kind of implying that she really wanted to go there vocally you know yeah. she wanted to really uh, stretch for that but um sweet's but, gonna I,
2: take it, the acoustic and do el shaddai she's gonna take the marshall <clears> and,
1: I actually off. think you know I've I've heard yeah. talk of a new Striper album in the works. I don't I wonder yeah. if we might see a Striper. El I? Come on, Michael, you yeah. can do it. Yeah. Um, that was a lot of fun. Um, it, it was uh, it was fun having them in the room. They they seemed to connect over the uh, band pastor Michael Guido, who I mm-hmm. knew nothing about, but apparently he was an important oh, figure yeah. at that time. Yeah. Is that right?
2: Oh yeah, still is. Yeah.
1: I don't know anything about the inner workings of, of the Christian music scene in the 80s. I only know my my youth group experience and my like all I know about it is I heard through a jam box or a Walkman or I saw them on stage, and so they are larger than life. You know, they're they're people on T-shirts or they're somebody you read about in a magazine, and we, in, in Electric Jesus, we treat both of them that way. We treat them as outsiders watching them. Which isn't probably isn't a very fair way to do it if you're trying to really show them in a real way, but it is it is the narrative way the movie treats it, as they're larger than life yeah. figures that are in some way inspiring a lot of the forward motion in the film.
2: Yeah, and it's not a documentary. It's it's not a history uh, of of them or of the scene. It's. It is through the lens, uh, the foggy, distorted lens of memory of people that were kids at the time. And yeah, I I appreciate as a fan. I kind of appreciated uh, the slight distortions uh, that are there. And, And honestly, even the ones that are vocalized that you go, yeah, that's actually not right. They're all authentic because everybody said those not right things back then.
1: Yeah, and I, I love the fact that both of them, I mean, they're young, very young people at the time. And even Steve Taylor alludes to this earlier. Um, they were just doing the work. As Steve said earlier, you're trying not to think about the aspects of this that are weird. Maybe not trying not to think about it, but you, you're, not, you're hopefully not getting caught up in that, getting caught up in the celebrity aspects of it or the... Hey, I'm a big shot. I'm super famous. Look at all these people that love me. And Amy seemed particularly uh, inoculated to it with, you know, through her. Yeah, and her it's in, it's kind of
2: interesting with the with the dichotomy or the difference in extremes between Striper, say, and Amy, because both in the church culture and in the contemporary Christian music culture. Uh, and being a female artist, there was definitely a an expectation of humility and quietness and you know your place and you better not have too much swagger. Whereas in the masculine, heavy metal, uh, mainstream mm-hmm. rock world, you had to have a, a lot of swagger or you weren't going to pull that off. You can't dress like that have your hair like that Hmm. and then act all quiet and timid like you you kind of have to run around that's a good point you know you know act like a maniac and it it does kind of reveal it it could be really hard to to turn that off when you come off stage like to to Mm -hmm. be a normal person when you come off stage i got a chance to hang out with the striper guys um back then it was it was the the first time I got backstage and spent most of a day with them was on the In God We Trust tour. So it was a little bit after the time of your movie. And mm-hmm. and uh, I was doing an article for somebody. I think I was about 18 years old. but um, And I was surprised to see all of the machinery that ma- They were at the height of their game. They were playing a stadium in Rockford, Illinois. Uh, and I got to see all of the apparatus, all of the machinery, everything and they were the most normal down to earth people that you could know and then you get up on that stage and you got to turn that switch and become mm-hmm. super like over the top and then come off stage and turn that thing right back off and it was amazing how many christians were waiting there in the meet and greet and they wanted they wanted michael to be a jerk they wanted to be able to point a <laughs> finger and go see that guy that guy he's full of himself yeah like, How could you not be full of yourself? You were just up there in front of 20,000 people, you know, and, and I remember even at 18 thinking, what a weird world where, you know, people paid money, you know, 20,000 people, whatever it was to, to scream their heads off. And then a handful of them went back to, to just find something wrong with these guys. And, and Amy experienced the same thing, uh, but in a different way, she had to, if she got too confident, if she got too, uh, self-possessed, you know, uh, if, if if the swagger came out at all even in a really natural healthy way people would you know get out the hammer and the nails uh, for her so uh it, the mythology and the reality and being a, a human being in that construct it's always interesting to hear those stories from people because it's it's so different off stage than it is on stage <laughs>
1: The three people we talked to today are some of the people that that people speak so highly of like you don't yeah. you even even going into that world you know you might hear gossip about this or a rumor about this or somebody says oh i don't like that guy or whatever these people are beloved and they are the people yeah. that um just for those who you may be super cynical with good reason you know there's reasons to be cynical but these are the people that your cynicism falls away when you actually Meet them, talk to them, and then hear you know people who've known them for years and talk about them. we we really and, and this wasn't my intention, but i I think we found three of the best people who are just they're just they're just great. they're just great people. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I and I even felt kind of moved and a little touched when um when Steve, the way he talks about leaving that world of Christian music, there was, you know, the industry had moved into a direction where it was just kind of... These aren't his exact words, but I think what he was implying was the industry was just kind of its own self-fulfilling prop- a prophecy. It was building a a Christian culture to be consumed by Christians and for people to really not be confronted or, um, you know, uh, the the to receive those pointed barbs anymore. And I think he realized this is really not where... I need to be anymore. Not with some regret, you know, I kind of could tell that, you know, he was kind of like, you know, it just wasn't the place for me anymore. (laughs)
2: That's gonna do it for this uh, first season of this. this. This has been quite a ride. What, it Really has way more right? work
1: than any of us thought. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <You> <laughs> With thought a shout out to so Bruce A. To Brown,
1: a by the way. <laughs> oh man, no, How hard it's could it it's be, it's right? no, it's not. It's not hard to record a conversation. It's hard to make it good. And again, right. an, an, serious props to to you, but also to Bruce A. Brown, who's been just working in the trenches, making us sound good, and digging up the music tracks that you hear, and you know, making us sound like we're we're pretty legit. <laughs> <laughs>
2: what uh, what do we have uh, in mind for season two, boss?
1: Well, okay, so I you know our goal with this. Season one was to expose people to the real world behind Electric Jesus with, with kind of leaning into the music of the movie and how we got to the music. So explore, you know meeting some of these Christian rock legends, talking to them, learning about that world, but also kind of pointing it towards uh, Daniel Smith and uh, how we turned this into music. some of the musicians we worked with we've been able to talk to as well. So for season two, um, we're gonna we're gonna change it up a little bit. It's gonna focus more on the film. We we said that the first season would be the music behind the movie. So the second season will be the movie behind the music. And that, as with any independently produced film project, it is indeed a roller coaster of highs and lows and everything in between. And so the goal for season two is to talk to a lot of brilliant people that know about how films are made and and some of the brilliant people that worked on this film, but also to give you the ride um, with uh, as much unflinching honesty as we can muster. So we're going to take you from the the very moment when we when we started the project, when it was uh, when it was uh, uh, going on to the page, and what was the intention and how we did that, all the way through the casting, the the production, the fabulous art design you've seen in, in the movie, uh, the costumes, all, everything that comes together into the film, and uh, up into right up to this moment of, of release where the film comes out and is seen everywhere. Um, so it's going to be cool. It's going to come just a little bit later in the summer, right around the time of the film's release, which we'll announce soon, um, but will be a document, uh, a pretty harrowing journey on uh, how Electric <laughs> Jesus came to be.
2: Awesome. Well, thanks for letting us hear so much so far and everybody out there listening. Thank you for your enthusiasm and for posting it to your friends and uh, helping us get the word out and all of the interview subjects, the artists and the songwriters and everybody that has let us use their music and uh, just appreciate it so much. And uh, Chris and Emily and everybody else, uh, this has been a blast. And so we're going to wrap up part one. Part two is coming soon. For more information about the Electric Jesus film, visit electricjesusfilm.com and make sure to sign up for the email list, also known as the G's team. You should also check out the Electric Jesus YouTube channel and Facebook groups for great behind the scenes videos, updated information about the film, and more. This podcast is produced by myself, John J. Thompson, and Bruce A. Brown for Gyroscope Productions and is intended for the private use of our listening audience. Everything on the Electric Jesus podcast is used by permission or under fair use provisions and with the exception of previously copywritten materials is the intellectual property of Blue Tape Records, LLC, and is protected by U.S. copyright law. Stay tuned for season two of the Electric Jesus podcast coming soon. Oh yeah, come on.
4: For Christ, let's all go commando.
1: Commandos for Christ. Let's all go commando. Let's all go commando. Let's go.
4: Let's all go commando
1: for Christ. That's it.